0: Good morning, and good morning. It's time for the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on Two Double X. Now, I've got a comment on the uh, the fantastic T-shirt that Bruce was wearing during Irish Voice a moment ago, and it's got like a square out of the periodic table, and it says Ah, Ah, the element of surprise. And uh, Not too many surprises here, we hope, on Fuzzy Logic this morning. Uh, we're heading off into space and uh have you seen the footage of uh this guy named joe kittinger and it dates i think it's about 1967 or thereabouts and he jumps out of this high altitude balloon and he's got this balloon uh this camera video camera's pointing straight down and there's this little body and he jumps and he jumps and you can see the curvature of the earth the The darkness of space And the kind of blue tinge of the planet And he just Disappears into the clouds And he fell for about 14 minutes roughly And uh, later on the guy Named Felix Baumgarten I think it's about 3 or 4 years ago uh, Did the same thing uh, And he, he Exceeded the speed Of sound Now we're going to space today We're going into high altitude balloons uh, and can you do astronomy From a high altitude balloon There are lots of advantages I'm guessing a few disadvantages And uh, we're going to talk astronomy With our guest today in the studio Ryan ridden harper good morning ryan
1: good morning it's a pleasure to be here
0: and uh, in the studio too we have uh andy andy leach good andy how's it going uh, andy is uh doing what they call in the airline industry in command under supervision because andy this is your first go after having done the producer training
2: yeah very first go very nervous but i, I still have to remember that interesting about uh, the Red Bull jump, um, Felix, what well, I've forgotten his last name, who did the the jump from the high altitude balloon. Kittinger was in his ear the whole time at, at ground control.
0: That's right. Yes, he it. had he had Kittinger helping him out with that. Now, Ryan, your your field, you're doing astronomy, and mm-hmm. you're from the ANU School of Astronomy. Yeah, the Research
1: School of Astronomy the and Astrophysics. Research,
0: Research School of Astronomy.
1: Thank it's you. It's a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> and we generally go by RSAA. And, uh, but you're looking at using high
0: altitude balloons for astronomy.
1: Yeah. What, what kind of astronomy? So, typically, well, for quite some time now, balloons have been used in astronomy because they offer a very easy and cheap way to get close to the space, or close to space. So, in astronomy, the atmosphere is a bit of a problem for a lot of reasons. One, the twinkling of stars is caused by atmospheric uh, disturbance that's very nice for us if we're just looking at the stars but it's bad if you want to collect very precise data. So the less atmosphere you have in the way uh, reduces the twinkling and increases the data sensitivity. But there are also different wavelengths of astronomy um, which get blocked by the atmosphere. So my area of interest at the moment is something called ultraviolet astronomy. So I'm looking at ultraviolet light coming from Very distant sources, like stars blowing up millions of light years away. So for me, that light gets blocked by the ozone layer, which is in general good for us because it means we don't get nasty sunburns. (laughs) But if we want to study these processes, we need to be above the ozone layer, which means either space or a half-tube balloon.
0: The, the wavelengths involved, are they the ones that are, relate to the hole in the ozone
1: layer? Yeah. They, they do? So, um, the, so, for me, it would be a good thing, theoretically speaking, to get rid of the ozone layer. So... Um, my science would have a brief moment of extreme expansion if the ozone layer were to disappear, followed by the immediate death of all life on Earth.
0: Which but would not be good. Yes, yeah, so
1: it would have to become ground people, but we could do ultraviolet astronomy. Could, could you locate your observatory
0: in the Antarctica?
1: So you could move your the observatory. Well, Antarctica does have an ozone hole, so um, you have a better situation observing ultraviolet light, but Antarctica is a very difficult place to go to, and it still has a reasonable amount of ozone covering. It's it. a
0: bit windy and
1: a bit yeah. cold and
0: hard to get to.
1: Another type of astronomy loves going to Antarctica, though, uh, infrared astronomy, because they want very little moisture in the air. So in Antarctica, there's pretty much no moisture around, um, so they can just go there, sit up, and uh, have very good seeing.
0: Okay, so you're you, you looking at the feasibility of balloons mm-hmm. to carry your instrumentation a lot. Yep. And I'm thinking of this gondola, swaying, gently yeah. beneath this beautiful uh, orb thing. And you that doesn't sound so good for a, a, yeah. a very delicate, very precise instrument.
1: So that is a very good point. So you could imagine, um, just thinking about it, we have this telescope attached to a balloon. It's up very high in the atmosphere, say around 30 kilometres up. Um, And we want very stable and precise pointings of this telescope. We don't want it to sway around. But you'd think it's pretty much just a very long pendulum, right? So you'd naively think it would swing around an awful lot. But the reality is, when you're up in the stratosphere, there's very little movement of the air. So there's nothing to kind of nudge it to start it swinging in the first place. So as long as you're aware of um, kind of the period of swinging that you would expect and can kind of engineer it to not swing like that, you can get very stable platforms. And they've been using high altitude balloons for astronomy since the 60s. So... NASA in particular have worked out an awful lot about balloon stability at those altitudes. Uh,
0: now I'm thinking on my camera, I have high-end camera lenses with image stabilisation, mm-hmm. so I'm guessing that they would have similar sorts of uh, gimbals and gyroscopes yeah. and stuff to stabilise the whole thing.
1: Yeah, so in general these platforms work where you have your high-altitude balloon, you have some cables that go down to the payload, and the payload has often got um, gyros and gears, as you're saying, to more or less separate its motion from the general motion of the balloon. So the, it's true that the balloon will probably rotate and shift around, but you want to try and isolate your payload from the rest of that balloon. And it's done quite successfully for most missions. So my telescope will be a fairly small uh, balloon-based mission. There's, um, NASA's released a number of gamma-ray telescopes, which weigh a couple of tonnes, so they have enormous balloons with enormous control systems, and uh, this this type of science on balloons is very useful.
0: Well, what what kind of movement can you tolerate? Uh, so even I would
1: guess. Well,
0: well, first of all, how far, how distant are the objects that
1: you're looking at? Ooh. So the question of distance in astronomy comes down to brightness. So often, if you talk. If you're listening to an astronomer or how good a telescope can be, they'll give you a number, say a limiting magnitude. So for the telescope we're wanting to build, we're aiming for a limiting magnitude of about 22. And then, with that limiting magnitude of the telescope, coupled with what we call the absolute or the intrinsic brightness of the object you're looking for, you can calculate the distance between um, you and the object you hope to find. Um, so with a limiting magnitude of 22 and looking for a supernova, the that stars that blow up, that have absolute magnitudes around minus uh, 19, we can see a couple million light-years away from us fairly easily.
0: OK. Now, what's, what sort of things are you hoping to learn with the uh, instrumentation, with the data that you collect?
1: So this project uh, was inspired by uh, something called a Type 1A supernova. So if you have, there are different types of supernova, the classical thing people think about is when a star, a very massive star, reaches the end of its life, it runs out of fuel, so all of the star kind of collapses down, rebounds and makes a lovely explosion. So that's the core collapse supernova, but there's another type called a type 1a supernova, where you have something called a white dwarf, which is the type of remnant our sun will turn into, that has a buddy going around It might be another white dwarf or it might be a companion star. Now, eventually, the companion will leak so much material onto the white dwarf that it will blow up. And when it blows up, it blows up with a very precise brightness. So, as we were talking about before, with the limiting magnitude and the absolute magnitude, you can calculate the distance between you and the 1A very accurately. So, we call it a standard candle. Um, So, what we want to do is look to see how these standard candles actually blow up with this companion and get better understanding of how we can measure distances in the universe with the standard candle and therefore get better constraints on how the universe evolves over time with dark energy.
0: Oh, So you you, you mentioned the life cycle of a a star, it it starts off burning helium, burning inverted commas of course. (laughs) Yeah. Can you just take me briefly through the the how a star will, will go through its life cycle? Yeah, and maybe maybe one of these super big stars and, and why they're special?
1: Yeah, so the stellar life cycle, as you uh, mentioned, depends on its mass. So if it's a small star like our sun, they'll they'll do some things, but they're not nearly as interesting as the big massive stars. So every star at the start of their life will take. Uh, will go through a fusion process at its centre. So fusion is when you take two fundamental atoms, say like hydrogen, and you slam them together under the great temperatures and pressures you'll find at the centre of the star to make a heavier atom. And that process releases some energy. So at the beginning of a star's life, it'll slam together four hydrogen atoms and make a single helium atom, as well as some other byproducts. And then once it's run out of hydrogen fuel at the centre, it goes into the helium-burning phase. So it starts slamming helium atoms together and making heavier elements.
0: I'll just, just to interrupt, what's the current stage of our sun?
1: Our sun is still in what we call the main sequence. So a star will spend almost all of its life on a main sequence where it's fusing helium into hydrogen, the other way around, hydrogen into helium.
0: There. So it's going through hydrogen mostly at this yeah. stage.
1: So our sun will only really get up to hydrogen or helium burning rather Uh, and then helium burning produces heavier elements which our sun unfortunately isn't really massive enough to have enough energy to start smashing together so when you get up to around carbon our sun will stop its fusion processes and grow to an enormous size at which point it will eat mercury venus and probably the earth and its outer layers will kind of puff off into the outer solar system
0: and Then Earth would be a bad place to be. Oh like
1: yes, yes, the Earth would be completely uninhabitable.
0: Well, we, we'd solve your uh, atmosphere problem. Yes, now, it we we? would. <laughs>
1: There'd be no atmosphere in the way. We could get fantastic observations if only the Sun weren't surrounding the entire sky. So, with these bigger, bigger
2: stars, do they keep keep slamming together those bigger and bigger atoms? To yes. A, what, what what size atom do we usually do they stop slamming
1: together? So. The biggest stars, doesn't matter how large you are, the furthest you can get to is iron. Once you reach iron, um, physics comes into play and says you can't fuse anything more, because to take iron atoms and slam them together uh, to make a heavier atom requires energy. It doesn't release energy. So iron kind of sits at the pinnacle of atomic stability, or at least an isotope of iron. And once you get this uh, most stable atom, you can't fuse heavier uh, well, atoms. You need un- atoms. Enough energy to, to yeah. get to the next level. Yeah, it takes energy to make bigger things. Yeah. So once you go past iron you can have something called nuclear fission, which is the thing we're most familiar with where the atom breaks down and becomes smaller. So up to iron you can get nuclear fusion. Past iron you get nuclear fission to get back to iron. Oh. So of course you have stable atoms after iron but the general rule fission happens after iron fusion happens before iron
0: well then how do we get to the things heavier than uh, iron and well Uh, Bruce was wearing the R
1: (laughs) yes yes Uh, so so these atoms can be produced of course because we have them around us they happen in very brief but cataclysmic explosions so once this big star has reached iron at the centre Um, it's no longer able to support itself. So stars are a very delicate equilibrium of uh, energy pressure coming, photon pressure we call it, so the energy from the fusion pushing out against the outer layers and gravity pulling everything down towards the center. Once you've run out of the photon pressure pushing out or the radiative pressure, you only have gravity pulling things down now so everything starts collapsing down towards the center and the core will collapse down to make something called a neutron star or a black hole and the rest of the stuff will kind of reach the core and rebound off so this is why we call it the core collapse supernova and in that moment where everything's super compressed and there's lots of gravitational energy in that system you can fuse together heavier elements but there's another process where you can get Um, elements like gold and the very heaviest elements. And that comes from when you have two neutron stars, so these are cores of very massive stars, in a binary system, so they're orbiting around each other. As we discovered last year, this binary system will emit gravitational waves, so they'll warp space, and that warping of space will make their orbit decay, so they'll get closer and closer over time. Eventually they'll collide, and in that collision they'll make an awful lot of gold, platinum and all the other what we call lanthanide elements.
2: You're mentioning a lot of elements you started saying that our sun will get to carbon yes. and then, then bigger stars will get to to iron and yeah. a lot of these elements are made up make up our earth and make up yeah. ourselves. Yeah, yeah. So these big stars or even those massive binary stars to make ourselves we have to have binary stars slowly warp, yes. and collapse into each other and explode yeah. and I guess die. Yeah, for us to exist.
1: It's pretty wild. Like, Our current understanding is the universe started with the Big Bang. Lots of evidence to support that. And it produced um, pretty much entirely hydrogen and then plus some helium and maybe some lithium. Uh, since that time, stars have gone about their business fusing those hydrogen atoms to make heavier elements. And as I just mentioned before, those big ones colliding to make gold and so on. And all of this had to have taken place before the earth could possibly have existed so where it's often said that we're stardust, so we're products of this nuclear fusion and explosions and all this oh, exciting dear,
0: dear listener i wish i wish we had fuzzy tv operating <laughs> here because uh, our, our guest today ryan uh, uh, ridden harper and our producer uh, Andy leach are uh, waving their hands on these wonderful hand gestures, and we 're seeing the you know, things popping in and things going out and things spinning round and round and we 're talking uh, astronomy of course, and stars and uh, and ryan 's project is the high altitude balloons and launching uh, we hope. Uh, mm.
1: In the near future, hopefully.
0: <laughs> it, it, it's just, I just love the way that you guys, astronomers, talk about oh, big, you know, big and, like, and, and cataclysmic. and you know, Like, I drop a cup of tea on the floor and the thing yeah. is smashed and, and I think, well, that was a big bang or I saw <laughs> a couple of cars collide on it in, in a bit of TV footage. Now, that's not big. That's no. not big. You guys talk big.
1: Really big, <laughs> stupendously big. It doesn't make any sense how big the objects are we're talking
0: about. We, we kind of language kind of fails us. it's like yes. you know, the, the deficit, mm. or or the weapons budget, trying, yeah, to, yeah. trying to figure out what these these numbers really mean. And that
2: was We Love You by the Rolling Stones. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on People Power Radio 2 XFM 98.3, uh, P- Canberra's community radio station. And with me in the studio, we have Rod Taylor and Ryan Riddle and Harper yeah. talking about. Sorry, I completely could not read <laughs> that at the moment. Uh, and we're talking all things about astronomy well, and astronomy astrophysics. and yeah.
0: balloons and people jumping out of balloons, people wanting to jump into balloons because they've got a, a an observatory up there. And look, the, the, the big news in astronomy in the last year or so is the gravitational waves, mm. the so-called LIGO. Detector, yeah. that's pretty damn amazing. Uh, what is uh, what's LIGO, uh, Ryan? We should yeah. say quickly that Ryan
2: is an expert on this. He has co-published a paper well,
1: on the LIGO. So, so we'll get it. I I think we'll get into the story in a bit. But uh, so I was on a paper with something like three thousand other astronomers. So you know, I'll claim fame, but it's it's pretty tenuous grasp there. Uh, so before we uh, mentioned something called neutron stars and that if they exist in a binary system they'll spiral in and collide together um so that's what's happening there is these two massive objects spiraling in in, um, emit or they warp space which produces something called gravitational waves these waves are extremely small um, so they were predicted by Einstein as a product of general relativity just over a hundred years ago now So
0: this is space itself is being yes. distorted uh, and this is this these waves before they actually touch while they 're still orbiting so
1: it's it's a combination of everything really so um every every moving mass will produce gravitational waves. So, if I just start waving my arms frantically... Oh, I can feel it. Yeah, yeah. So, I have mass, and I'm moving that mass. And because that mass is moving, space is somewhat being bent and distorted by its motion. We we should give the listeners a
2: quick, basic understanding of space-time. So, what I want you to do, dear listener, is in your mind, think about a big mat of rubber. Really stretch it out, stretch it out, stretch it out, so it's really tight, and then... Think of that as one layer of space-time around us and if you push on it, it'll warp and distort a little mm-hmm. bit and if you push on it and pull it on different areas and you can make little distortions to space-time which is essential and if you do that regularly enough or in a, as a sequence, you'll make a little bit of a wave through the rubber yeah.
1: and that's kind of like a wave through space-time. Yeah, so you can think of it like if you throw a stone into a pond you'll get ripples coming off of it. Or, or maybe like a spider on its
0: web. And it feels, yeah. it feels the little wobbles from yeah. an
1: insect. This is, of course, a gross simplification <laughs> of the situation. So, gravitational waves is what we call quadrupole. So they don't just go up and down in one direction; they go up and down in two directions. But uh, that's beside the point. Anyway, you have space; it's getting warped, and it's wobbling all over the place. Um, but these warps are extremely small. Um, so, for it was predicted that these variations would be. Um, below about 10 to the minus 15 metres So if you could imagine it, that's 0.00015 times to get to a 1
0: What would that be in the scale of an atom?
1: Uh, it's, it's smaller than the radius of a proton So pro-atoms of course in the nucleus you have a proton and a neutron um.
2: So when Einstein theorised the idea of a a gravitational wave did you ever think, oh we'll be able to detect these one day or just like, don't worry about it guys this is a thing we don't need to worry
1: about The funny thing is, um, he put forward this idea of gravitational waves and thought oh this is utter garbage, you'll never be able to find them, they probably don't exist So then he tried to publish a second paper rebuking his own findings, but Uh, In science, as these things go, you you publish a paper, it goes to referees who check the validity of the ideas. The referees uh, stoutly refused to publish that paper um, because uh, the gravitational waves were a natural byproduct of uh, general relativity. So he didn't like it and thought that they would probably never be found. Uh, It took us a hundred years to get to the stage where we could actually detect them, so engineering uh, it took some time to catch up to the theoreticians. And it's,
0: a, it's, just, it's an astounding uh, feat, isn't it? To,
1: it's to, incredible. To it. So LIGO itself, this gravitational wave detector that found things um, two or three years ago, the first black hole merger, then last year found the first binary neutron star merger. So that has, it's, it's what we call an interferometer. So they use lasers to measure distances extremely precisely.
0: Is it a pair of lasers? yeah, so it's a pair. And there's a pair of observatories, aren't there? Yes,
1: so there's two observatories, one on the west coast of the US, one on the east coast. So they're well separated so that any kind of noise source, any geological noise source or industrial noise source shouldn't affect both at the same time. So what so if the missions
0: walk past and farts, it's going to... Yeah.
1: they're extremely sensitive. So people walking around or trucks driving down a freeway a couple of kilometres away will produce some signals in these detectors. So you have
2: these two, well, four, I guess, lasers set up, different parts of the States, mm-hmm. and they're monitoring kind of every little fluctuation I see around them. That's yeah. when they both pick up something at the yes. same time that you go, oh, hold on, there's something here. Yeah.
1: So when they both register the same pattern um, or very similar to the same pattern uh, you then okay. say alright we've got a potential trigger then you can
0: eliminate low noise yes exactly right. one thing I've, I've not heard anybody ask I've listened to a few interviews with the, the, mm. the LIGO researchers is can they detect the source the direction of uh, the event
1: that's a super interesting problem um, so they can when the first detection was made, so when they first found gravitational waves from binary black holes, they are able to localize the position on the sky by timing the thing. So although both of the uh, LIGO detectors register the same signal, the separation means that there should be a slight time lag between the two.
0: And knowing the orientation
1: of the Earth? Yes, and knowing the orientation of the Earth and the relative positions of the detectors, you can vaguely localize it on the sky. But that localization is phenomenally bad. The first one was pretty much like a third of the sky it could have happened in.
0: <laughs> oh wow.
1: So it was it was of course, pretty much every telescope on Earth started following up on that third of the sky to try and find some <laughs> counterpart for this <laughs> one third of the sky it was, it was something ludicrous it was thousands, it was hundreds to thousands of square degrees so we need some more lasers
2: to be able to triangulate things better. yeah
1: so the detection that happened last year of the binary neutron star merger that was aided by a counterpart in Europe so Europe has been working on something called the Virgo detector which is also a laser interferometer. Um, but based in Europe. It's not nearly as sensitive as what the LIGO detectors are but it allows you to give a constraint on directions. So in some directions the detector is more sensitive than other directions so if you know the strength that LIGO received it um, you should be able to work out if Virgo didn't see it uh, what orientation would it not be able to see it from?
0: I wonder whether in future there might be one in space and then you can get Oh yes Yes, Yes. There's,
1: there's plans, there's plans, <laughs> there's plans for interferometers everywhere. So India's uh, currently going ahead trying to make one. There were some bids for Australia to build a massive one, in Western Australia at some point. Um, Japan, I believe, is also working on one, and I'm sure China is as so well. So this
0: is a real cutting edge of... of. Yeah, oh, yeah. Now your balloons are tied into this, aren't they?
1: Yes, Um. so my the first paper published in my PhD is is related to this. So in gravitational or in mergers of these gravitational wave events, you'll have two bodies colliding together. Um, They'll either be black holes spinning down, colliding, or a neutron star pair colliding or even a black hole neutron star pair colliding. Um, So what people are interested in is if you can find a counterpart to these gravitational waves, so some optical light. So you have multiple lines of evidence. Yeah. So um, no one really expects to see anything from black hole mergers, but wherever a neutron star is involved, you should see some light. So that's why the entire astronomy community got so excited last year when LIGO found neutron star merger. Within a day, well, within a few hours, in fact, the optical counterpart was found, and pretty much every telescope on the world trained on this neutron star merger.
2: So they, they used Virgo, like you mentioned before, yep. and said, okay, well, LIGO got it, Virgo didn't, it's probably in these parts of the mm-hmm. sky, so they shrank it down a little bit better, yep. and then all the telescopes just scoured the yep. sky for a few hours it seems, yeah, yeah. and then everyone went, okay, well, it's here, let's everyone watch yep. these neutron stars merge. So there's,
1: there's a, an extra piece of information as well, um, a gamma-ray telescope, I believe it was Fermi, also picked up a gamma ray burst. That's a short burst of very energetic light uh, that came from the same patch of sky as well. And it was co-located within... uh, Time-wise, it was about 1.3 seconds after the gravitational wave was found. So they're like, oh, that's probably it. So then, using Fermi plus the gravitational wave detectors, they got a fairly good constraint on where it should be, and then all the survey telescopes started scouring that region and picked it up.
2: So... That's thousands of people working together quickly to kind of get. That's all over the world. That's an amazing piece of
1: communication achievement as well, not just technological and and physical. It's kept fairly quiet as well with the number of people. I was fortunate enough to be observing with uh, the ANU's 2.3 meter telescope at Siding Spring uh, the night after it was detected. So I was supposed to be doing something to do with exoplanets, but immediately my schedule changed to you've got to observe this thing (laughs) so I was the first person in Australia along with a a friend of mine um, to get the spectra of this event and we got the fifth spectra globally So that was kind of fun.
0: Oh, that is cool, Ryan. That is very, very cool. I I love the way that, uh, you know, it's exciting. Like, you might think that doing astronomy was hours and hours sitting in front of a telescope or a of paper and computer readouts and stuff. I'm sure a lot of it is. Yeah. A lot of it must be. But you, you get these little moments where something like that happens and you're right on the cutting edge. Yeah.
1: Is that what got you excited? what got you excited about each this field? Well, I just so in general, I just want to know how things work and there's a lot of stuff in space, so that's what got me into astronomy and all of this like big exciting new discoveries is I guess what keeps me going because you never know when the next discovery will come along and you never know what it will mean and it, you
2: you were mentioning sorry. Dear listener, we were talking a bit before off-air and you mentioned TESA, another another piece, okay, of yep. TESA, sorry, another piece of technology that might help us discover something new. Do you want to give us a bit of background on that?
1: Yeah, so uh, TESS is the next generation of exoplanet hunter. So an exoplanet is a planet that orbits around stars that are not our sun. Uh, before we had the Kepler Space Telescope, which looked at a patch of space and found thousands of exoplanets through what we call the transit method. So if the planet crosses between us and the star we're looking at, that star will become momentarily fainter on the order of a percent level. And if we're sensitive enough and observe the star long enough, we can pick up multiple dips and say, alright, there's a planet there and it's got this kind of science. Uh, with, but Kepler broke a while ago and it's been repurposed for other things. So they've sent up its replacement TESS the transiting exoplanet survey satellite. That was last week,
0: wasn't it? No, it was this week. week. Thursday, Thursday morning
1: for us. (laughs) It was rather exciting. It went up on a SpaceX rocket, the Falcon 9, which of course landed its first stage, which was very exciting. (laughs) So TESS is now making its way to its very elliptical and eccentric orbit around the Earth. And it will start its mission in a couple of months. And to it's, gone, it's gone around the moon, I believe. Yeah, so it's going to get a slingshot from the moon to put it in its very special orbit. And it will look, its goal is to look at pretty much the entire sky uh, to try and find exoplanets around the most brightest and nearby stars. And they're expecting it to find. On the order of uh, hundreds of thousands of planets. Well,
0: that's that's amazing and this thing was packed in the boot of a Tesla of course. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, one thing. I, so if, if a planet's passing in front of another star and a planet has some sort of atmosphere does that mean this new telescope will be able to pick up the atmosphere and tell us a bit about that planet's atmosphere?
1: So, so this is a very interesting point. So um, with Kepler it was looking at fairly far away stars and fairly faint ones, so they would be able to find planets, but in general they were too far away for ground-based telescopes to do follow-up observations with. So with TESS the goal is to look at nearby stars surrounding us. It's unable to look in different wavelengths, it's just got a single filter, so it only looks in one wavelength effectively, Um, but the special thing is all the planets it will find will probably be very accessible to telescopes on the ground. So the goal will then be to use ground-based telescopes to try and get information about the atmospheres of these places.
0: And and when they do, well, you can see the alien on the planet waving. Yeah. Hello, but not um, being silly, yeah, of yeah. course. But uh, I'm guessing that there are signature gases that if we can detect those gases, then maybe...
1: Yeah, so, so this ties back into uh, my balloon project a bit. So one of the things that we're hoping to do with it is try and find if we can detect uh, oxygen in the atmospheres of exoplanets. So the way this all works is when the planet goes in front of its host star, it blocks out some light. But if that planet has an atmosphere around it, uh, light gets scattered in the atmosphere based on what atoms are in that atmosphere, what atoms and molecules it's comprised of. So you end up with what we call different effective radii based on what wavelength of light you're looking at and the composition. So it
0: is, it's basically a before and after comparison? Yeah.
1: So you, if you observe the effective radius and a range of wavelengths like red, green, blue and ultraviolet, you'll be able to see that the, radius, the effective radius changes and that tells you that there's different uh, species in the atmosphere. So, so,
2: yeah, just to make that a bit closer to home for the listener mm. if a so, uh, satellite was looking back from Earth and was looking at the Sun and they saw Earth go in front of it, what kind of colour what kind of signatures would get a bit of a blue is well, my guess? Okay.
1: So so for the Earth's atmosphere, next time there's something called uh, a, lunar, uh, yeah, a lunar eclipse, you can see what the Earth would look like oh. so if you, lunar eclipses are where the Earth goes in front of the Sun from the perspective of the Moon So the moon is directly behind the Earth and in the Earth's shadow. So what you have is the light passes through the Earth's atmosphere and then lands on the sun. So it's been described as the sun is being lit up by uh, millions of sunrise and sunsets. So what you have is the light passing through the atmosphere. We have lots of nitrogen in our atmosphere, which scatters the blue light around. So only the red likes to make it through. And of course, the ozone layer, from my perspective, blocks all ultraviolet light. So if you just gaze at the moon on a lunar eclipse, you'll see that the surface is red, and we had one of those not too long ago. And that red is because the atmosphere is filtering out the light. And the exact same thing is happening with the exoplanets going around distant stars.
2: So if you were that satellite looking for that filter, looking and see what kind of light the... The earth filters, you'd get some red because the Mm -hmm. blue is being scattered by the natural and it'd also go, well there's no ultraviolet here, Uh so that means there must be an ozone layer or there's there's something blocking the ozone. Uh, you're listening to Fuzzy Logic on Canberra's people-powered radio, 2XFM And, Rod,
0: we have some Fuzzy Logic in the newspapers. Yes, week. that's right. In the Canberra Times each week, we have our Ask Fuzzy column. I want a quick hello to Tom, who's listening in. G'day, Tom. And we'll get you into the studio again soon. Now, uh, here on Fuzzy Logic, we have our companion column each week in the Canberra Times and online in Fairfax. And I had a, a reader write in and asking about water filters. And he says he's got a water filter on his tap. Does he really need one? And I think we're pretty good with water in Campbell. We're blessed with good water supplies. So I got uh, our friends at uh, the water supplier who are called Icon uh, Water. And if uh, the short answer is no, you don't need it. But there are a few technical words in there, like flocculation, (laughs) polite words, I have to say, and uh, anthracite, coal. And I'm thinking now, because we've just been recording this, uh, or playing the interview from last week's March for Science, and I think I might write a column on the role of logic and science. And in particular, our friend Aristotle, who we did get on the show uh, a little while ago. Yeah, it, was it 3,000? 3,
2: 3,500 years ago, I think, yeah. was when we got him on.
0: Well, he he catalogued forms of false logic, and what's the role of logic in science, and in particular, how do you find the false argument? And there's a whole bunch of those, such as oh, the false facts or the false conclusion, you know, uh, is it A or B? No, actually the answer is C, and that kind of stuff. Now, our friend in the studio today, we've been talking about uh, astronomy, but uh, Ryan Ridden-Harper, you do a podcast Mm. which has the uh, colourful name, BS.
1: Yes. Uh, What is that? So, the Barely Science podcast, or the BS, is one I do uh, with my office mate, Mount Stromer, Alec Thompson, um, and we delve into some things that might border the lines between pseudoscience and science and try and um, come to a conclusion on if it's uh, real science, barely science or just BS.
0: And there's no no shortage of barely science. No.
1: What's your favourite story? Um, so at the moment there's a pretty good one with um, the the Flat Earth fellow who's trying to launch himself in a steam powered rocket to discover if the Earth is flat or curved for himself. The the great irony, of course, being that no matter how hard he tries, he could just buy an airline ticket and get much higher than what he'll achieve with this steam-powered rocket. Uh, so we talk about things like this and delve into the, the physics of the situation and try and get to the root of the cause. It's always good fun, um, and if we didn't do the podcast, Alec and I would just be talking to each other about it, so it's and a good outlet. And this
0: guy built a steam-powered rocket, right? Yes. What uh, You were saying about the capabilities, all that thereof,
1: yes. steam-powered. It's its pretty ludicrous. So steam can be used to power lots of things. I mean, the Industrial Revolution happened. But steam-powered rockets is not a good idea because you need a lot of uh, support structure to hold an immense amount of steam pressure, and that support structure is, of course, heavy, which creates kind of this feedback loop of you need more steam to hold lift the support structure so it's enough as you were saying it go
0: it's hard to get it to go up but boy it comes down oh yes
1: he came down with a thud and was rushed to the hospital
2: so you can find that podcast uh barely science or wherever you find your podcast it can be
1: found on itunes youtube and soundcloud fantastic that'll probably
2: capture all of your podcasts you can also find us on 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 Uh, your podcast fuzzy logic on uh, fuzzy logic